Um, but here's what we're looking at today, to be, to do. Uh, and today we look at the return of Jesus to his hometown. Excuse me. We look at the announcement of his fivefold ministry and mission and how Jesus showed whatever it may cost him on earth, he fulfilled and would fulfill the Isaiah prophecy. Uh, we also look at Jesus' intentional use of a particular piece of scripture in Isaiah 61 um, and why he stopped where he did, which is a fascinating uh, piece of information that I've never really caught on to and why he stopped where he did. But it, it is an amazing piece of uh, it is very carefully crafted by God to stop where he did. And I'll tell you why that is. Um, but what I want us to learn and take away uh, is that to follow Jesus will at times be at the cost of friends and family. Uh, that the gospel is not designed to fit cosily into our lifestyles, but to challenge and change them forevermore. But that that change will release us from worldly expectations and demands, aim our sights on the kingdom and ready us until the return of Jesus. And as we approach Christmas, it is, it is somewhat um, become the norm to preach the word in a way that sometimes does not reveal the full extent of Jesus' birth into the world. Um, sometimes it can act as, as too much of a comfort blanket, in, in, and that's my own personal opinion, um, Jesus being born into the world is to uh, pay the price of sin, ultimately. His ultimate uh, mission on earth was to pay the price of sin. Um, and, and it's nice to hear the story of baby Jesus, but it has a bigger meaning and a massive impact on our lives that we should always be aware of. Um, and so it's very easy to make this a, a comfort blanket story at Christmas. Uh, and instead of really what we should be doing, which is calling people to accept the salvation of Jesus Christ. Uh, and you would have seen, as I mentioned before, many different versions of, uh, of the Christmas story in schools, online, wherever, with aliens and all sorts involved. And, and you know, this is just where we're going at the moment. It's, it's just the story has been lost in worldly entertainment. Uh, and, and it's a serious message. Uh, but for, for when we understand the true ramifications of the second coming, when we treat the book of revelations and the books of prophecy in the Bible as normative, as part of the Bible narrative, then those Christmas sermons will and should, to a certain extent, become objectionable. I do uh, look forward to the day where people will be objecting about the Christmas story, uh, because it says everything about who we are, uh, everything about what we're not, uh, and why we need Jesus. So I'm going to read this, Luke 4, 14 to 30, uh, and it says this, uh, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. About three million people in Galilee, apparently, according to uh, the information there, there about three million people, so lots of people uh, when he was there following him, or at least uh, around him at the time. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth where he had been brought up and on the Sabbath day went into the synagogue as was his custom. He stood up to read and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind to set the oppressed free to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. 
Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son? They asked. Jesus said to them, Surely you will quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself. And you will tell me, do here in your hometown what you've, we have heard that you did in Capernaum. Truly I tell you, he continued, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel, Elijah's time, uh, Israel in Elijah's time, when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in, in Zarephath, in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy. In the time of Elisha and the prophet, yet, the one of them, uh, yet, one, yet not one of them was cleansed, only, only Naaman the, the Syrian. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of the town and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. He loved that. It's very different, by the way, that last piece to other times when he is when he disappears. Um, this this one is is quite quite unique uh, in that he just walked right through the crowd. Other times he he sort of disappears or he's ushered away or he's helped uh, out of the way. Um, but we'll, we'll get on to what that what that means and, and what we're we're looking at. But the background here is that when Jesus returns to Galilee, uh, he's just returned from testing uh, in the wilderness by the devil. And what we find is a Jesus who, who isn't tired of, because also you remember the angels attended him uh, after that. And so this has come off the back of that attendance, that he's been restored, he's been, he's been recharged, as it were, he's been healed uh, in whatever way that is, that angels do that, uh, and, and, and get him back to um, his best, as it were. Um, but Jesus, uh, we find a Jesus who is empowered by the power of the Spirit. His victory over the devil was due to leading by and already being filled with the Spirit. This is not a, uh, a, a first time. This is a renewing of the Spirit, as it were. He is now empowered by the Spirit, uh, and he already has the Spirit, and we'll get onto that as well. But when we read verses 14 and 15, what we see is a teacher on fire. Uh, as I was trying to think about this, he, uh, 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 how this might look, um, he was going around, and he was... He was, um, he was going around and speaking in all the synagogues in Galilee. And, he was, and everyone was amazed at what he was saying. And I was trying to think, what, well, how might that look? And I, and I thought, this, this reminds me of, of these films, right? Where, you know, you get, um, I, I don't know, and this is before I became a Christian. Although, you know, films are films. But uh, the Rocky films... Um, Every Rocky film, the boxer Rocky, every film had a montage moment. Uh, I don't know if you remember, but what would happen is when he's training for the fight, uh, he would, they would have put together this montage of two minutes of him training, running up the steps and, and, and boxing and all this stuff. And he's getting ready uh, and he, he, he's, he's training. And I thought, this is one of those moments, isn't it? If, if this was put in a movie and we saw Jesus at this time and everyone's amazed at his teaching... I think what you'd see is, is some sort of music over the top of it, right? And it, and it would be the latest Christian song that you'd have over it that was inspiring and, it, and it, it'd feel great and really good. And yeah, look at Jesus, go. 
And by the way, I'm not comparing Rocky to Jesus. I'm just using it as an example. But I remember those films, and it was all about overcoming adversity, having this, the, gaining this strength and momentum and, and, and getting ready for what was about to come. But I do imagine um, how this might be depicted in the movie, and Jesus going around in the synagogues was just, would have been amazing to see. Empowered by the Spirit, off of the back of coming out of the desert, out of the, the wilderness, and he's ready to, to, to share the good news of Jesus, uh, of, of the kingdom, and of himself, uh, who's come to save us. But seriously, this uh, specific part uh, has been written to help us understand the power of which uh, of Jesus' teaching. So that we can understand the impact it would have on the people of his hometown. Jesus arrives at the synagogue in his hometown in Nazareth. And as was custom, the usual order of service in the synagogue began with an opening prayer, praise, and then a reading from the law, then a reading from the prophets, and a sermon. Jesus would have attended it often before, uh, and now he will read and teach in his hometown synagogue. And we know, as we'll get to, that there, there, there probably would have been a, a tense anticipation just as Jesus is about to speak. We've seen that verse already. We read that, uh, isn't this Joseph's son? But this, uh, and you can imagine that, that, that when we read this scripture, it's very purposefully detailed. It says that he took, he was given the scroll, and he un. Un, 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 unwrapped it, unrolled it and, and there's a sense of anticipation that God wants to give us here, that Jesus is about to speak, for the first time in his hometown, and certainly within his mission that he's now doing and the mission he's about to carry out, he's already been, he's already been doing healings, he's already been preaching in other places but now this is the first time in his mission time uh, on earth that we will see him, that they will see him uh, read and they get this sense of what would he say what would he preach but more importantly for them they wanted to see him perform miracles in Nazareth they wanted to see what he had been doing elsewhere because that's why they were anticipating his arrival, his presence they wanted to see these miracles so what does Jesus say because what he says from Isaiah is firstly what he is and what he will do. And now I need, what I need to do now is jump to the end uh, of what he says uh, and a reading of Isaiah so we can look into what Jesus is saying specifically when he quotes it. So he quotes Isaiah and then he says this. He says he began by saying to them, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Uh, the reason why you might um, not Yet, why it says he began and he's already began is because what he's coming to now is a sermon. So he reads from Isaiah, and then when he says he began to say it by saying to them, he then launches into a sermon. We don't hear this sermon, we don't know what he says uh, because it's a sermon and it's, it's longer than what these verses give us. Uh, but he began by saying to them, more importantly, today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And we need to hold that in our minds and we need to say, what is he saying first and foremost? And he says this, Luke 4 verse 18 says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me. How do we know what Jesus is saying is true? 
Here's Jesus who has come, who has come to his hometown in the synagogue. He's read out Isaiah, the prophecy, and he's made this bold claim, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me. He is using prophecy from Isaiah and applying it to himself. How do we know that that's true? Luke 3, 21 to 22. This is why we were teaching about saving truth. We look into the word to find the answers. When all people, all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And as he was praying, heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son whom I love, with you I am well pleased. That's how we know, an easy way to look at Jesus' claims and look into the word and see, well, how has he backed that claim up? We can see that in the baptism. We can see when the spirit descends on him, he is now, uh, he is, as it were, filled with the spirit. Very easy and simple way to discern truth in the word. We're okay when we see claims in the Bible to go and check because it helps us to learn, helps us to see what uh, the truth is in the word. So when people ask us about these things, we can say, well, actually what happened before is that the Holy Spirit descended on him. He was in a queue of all those people that were waiting to be baptized by John and, and he got baptized and then the spirit descended on him. So now we know that when he says the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me, that he is speaking the truth. So right now, Jesus is stating through the Isaiah prophecy that I am the fulfillment of that prophecy, not through a basis statement, but of actual fact. I have to remind you that whilst he's saying this, they're still waiting for him to do a miracle. Uh, the anger expressed when we see in our verses is because that's what they're waiting for. They're waiting for him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's really great. And it's amazing what you said. But we want some miracles. We want to see some magic tricks. The critical requirement of that fulfillment is that the person would have the spirit of the Lord on him and be anointed. So Jesus must be the fulfillment to do the ministry that is about to follow. So let's look at the fivefold ministry and see what, he, what is Jesus here to do or was, was he's there to do but continues to do right now through the Holy Spirit. Let's look at the first one. The first one is to preach the gospel to the poor. What does that mean? Sin impoverishes. It, it makes people poor. Uh, you might think of, well, there are people who sin who are rich. Yeah, that's true. But that's what Jesus is talking about. He's not talking about your wealth. He's not talking about how much money you have in the bank. He's saying that the truth is that money or not, sin will impoverish you and impoverish you from the kingdom. If you remain in sin, you do not have any part in the kingdom. And so the Messiah will bring the good news to the poor. And it's not that he will make people rich in wealth, but rich in possessing the gospel for the purposes of salvation. 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9 says this, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that, through, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. 2 Corinthians 6 verse 10, Sorrowful yet always rejoicing, poor yet making many rich, having nothing and yet possessing everything. To possess everything, but to not be wealthy. Nothing wrong with being wealthy, nothing wrong with that at all, 
But what is, what is, what is our aim in life when, when, we are, when we have abundance of wealth? Is it that we want to keep and hold on to that because that's our Lord, that's our Saviour, that's our God? Or a possibility that God might help you and us to use it in a way to bless, to serve. That ultimately this wealth will not get us into heaven. So what Jesus is giving is possession of not being poor anymore, but being wealthy in the kingdom. I could go on about <clears throat> uh, prosperity preaching, but we won't. Suffice to say, stay away from it. It's not healthy. Second one. He says, to heal the brokenhearted, he says. Sin breaks hearts. Sin breaks people. And the Messiah has good news for the brokenhearted. That the good news for the brokenhearted is not to feel better for now, although he can do that and does do that. Not, but not to experience a, a temporary false peace, but an everlasting peace that cannot be offered by the world. John 14 verse 27 says this, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. Thirdly, to proclaim liberty to the captives. Sin makes people captive and enslaved to it. And the Messiah has come to set them free. Captivity in a physically worldly sense and freedom from it is not enough to truly set people free. It is good to pray for people to be set free from oppression, uh, from people that are suffering from actual, from, from worldly imprisonment, oppression. Absolutely. Falsely, yes, absolutely. Pray for them. But it's not ultimately the freedom from a prison cell that will set us free but uh, set us free in our hearts what does jesus come to do he's come to preach a bigger gospel than the one we anticipate he was to come and do even the jews thought he was to come and overturn the roman rule and yet he didn't do that misinterpretation mis expectation of what jesus was there to do he's there for the bigger purpose the bigger mission that hearts will be won over to the kingdom of heaven and people will be saved When people put their faith and trust in Christ, the freedom from sin today and in the kingdom is assured. John 8 verse 36 says this, So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Fourth, recovery of sight to the blind. Sin blinds us. We can live in sin and not necessarily realise it. That's the great thing about the gospel. It's a great thing about looking into Christianity is looking into Jesus. Jesus is trying to reveal the sin that we are in. And the hard, the hard side to that is that once you know it, we're going to have to try and live with that on this earth. We're going to have to try and get through it and, and, and be more like Jesus every day. Again, this isn't about making us feel better and taking away the challenges of the world. Me and Dan have had a discussion once about what it means to uh, have the sinful nature and then for, for it to be uh, once we give ourselves to God that it's, 
It's, we're no longer of the sinful nature, but, but we are living in a broken world that continues to sin. And so around us, we are affected, influenced, tempted by sin itself. So because we become Christian, because we realise the truth does not take away from the sin and the brokenness that happens around us. That's a hard thing to sell, isn't it? When you're saying, look, I'm, I'm not here to make you feel better. I'm not here to make you feel good. I'm here to tell you the truth, that sin is real. Sin happens. Sin is happening right now in your life. But Jesus has come so that you may be saved. When Jesus makes himself the proclamation of the good news, his mission is to reveal that, that to our spiritual and moral blindness. Not so we trust in the physical healing of blindness, but the opening of our eyes to the gospel for the sake of our souls. Yes, he might heal people of their blindness. That is God's authority to do so. But his mission, what he's come to do, is to bring open eyes to those that are blind. John 9 Verse 35 to 39 says, Jesus heard they had thrown him out. <clears throat> when he found them, he said, do you believe in the son of man? This is about the blind man who was healed uh, when he, they threw him out. He says, who is he, sir? The man asked, tell me so that I may believe in him. Jesus said, you have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. Then the man said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. Jesus said, for judgment, I've come into this world so that the blind will see and those who see will become blind. I have not got the time to talk about that last verse. It's a big verse and it needs, it needs a bigger, a longer time to talk about. Suffice to say, Jesus hasn't come so that only he will heal people of their blindness, but to heal people of their spiritual blindness. People who think they don't need a doctor. If people think they don't need healing from Jesus, then they won't be healed. If people think they don't, they don't have sin in their life, then that's the life they're going to choose and that's the life they're going to live in. It is still to choose to trust in Jesus. And that means having to admit our sinful nature. Lastly, fifth, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. Sin oppresses its, its victims and the Messiah comes to bring liberty to the oppressed. The oppression in this world and of each other is terrible enough that we do to one another. But our lives, our very soul being bound up in oppression, which causes us to be oppressors, which causes us to be the oppressed, caused by the outward effects of a spiritually broken world and fractured world is worse. We cannot solve the oppression problem unless we get to the root of why the oppression problem exists in the first place. It's because of our sin that we are tied up in. Jesus comes to bring about a full restoration of all those oppressed. And when he does that, when he brings this freedom, the full restoration of all those oppressed, he brings freedom into eternity, not just for now, not just freedom from prison, but freedom from the chains of sin. 
John 16 verse 33 says this, I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. It's a great verse, great verse. All this Jesus has done and will continue to do. When Jesus says, <clears throat> excuse me, when Jesus says it is fulfilled, he says that Isaiah wrote of me. When Isaiah was writing, he wrote of me, he says. He wrote of now. That's a big statement to make. Here is prophecy being fulfilled. And you can tell they're not really clued in, right? Because people are not really sure whether Jesus is who he says he is because we just read that that's what happens. Peace saying, prophecy has now been fulfilled today. Jesus stands in front of them and says, I am the one fulfilling that prophecy. What Jesus does next after reading out this scripture from Isaiah is stop short. In Isaiah 61, where this is from, Jesus finishes on this. He says, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. Isn't that great? It's lovely. It's beautiful. It's fantastic. The, declare, proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. And yet when we turn to Isaiah 61 verse 2, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. Now for a minute, if this wasn't Jesus, and this is just some preacher, I'd be saying, now you're just trying to dress it up and make it look nice. If you're stopping short because you don't like the bit about the vengeance of God, you're just trying to make it look nice, aren't you? But it's done intentionally. It's an amazing piece of work by God of why he stops short. This is intentional. As what can be read from this is that the vengeance of our God is held for now until the second coming of Jesus. With one verse to another, he speaks of the 2,000 year gap. He speaks of what's to come. What is, what is coming in the second coming? Vengeance of our God. Judgment. It's coming because that's what is coming when Jesus returns. Pure judgment. But those in Christ will be with God. Those who trust their lives in Jesus, they're going to join him in heaven. We're going to be praising his name. And I'll get to the end of this. And there's a verse that absolutely just I love. Because it speaks about people who don't know him. Not in a vengeful way. In a tearful way. In a real distressing way. And I'll get to that at the end. I really want to read that out. Because it just closes this very nicely. We might describe the time of grace as the Lord's year of favour. But a time will come. When God in the second coming will judge all people. After Jesus had given his sermon, they spoke well of him and were amazed by his words. I think every um, person who preaches secretly want that. They want to be amazed. They want, they want people to feel amazed by their words. Uh, I particularly don't, and never have, actually. Uh, I, I thank you for the encouragement. It's very welcome. Um, but I don't particularly look for uh, the edification, as it were, the, the, the false edification. I don't, I don't want to look for that. I, I want to get into the word. And if I read the word and if you, it, it speaks to you, then I hope the Holy Spirit has spoken to you. And it's not my doing, but hopefully I've relayed something of what God wanted to say today. But they were amazed by his words. They love what he said. 
reading out Isaiah, having this sermon that we don't hear about, must have been an amazing sermon. The best sermon of any sermon ever. It doesn't matter how good you are at, at preaching. Jesus was the best. Here is the best sermon that we see. It's so good that we don't get to hear about it. But anyway. But now the audience that Jesus is talking to wanted special favours because he was in his hometown. They want to see the miracles. Jesus points out that this doesn't matter to God. Using Elijah and Elisha's miracles as example because they were doing uh, because they were done among Gentiles. What Jesus tells them when he speaks of Elijah and Elisha is that just because there was a perceived need for those miracles, it didn't mean that it would be done. What Jesus comes back to is the authority of God. It is the authority of God that everything rests on. That whole place, bar one person, did not get healed. You won't hear that being preached in a so-called healing ministry that praises itself, that looks for experience and, and, and pushing people over and all that stuff and all, all the, the show and the entertainment. You won't hear that. You won't hear that verse. You won't hear about God's authority to sometimes not heal. Because when we become Christians, what we say is it is God's authority, not mine. It is up to God whether he heals. It is up to him whether it is uh, his place, whether he wants to do that in that time. So it doesn't mean it would be done. Jesus has been consistent in his teaching that all the miracles of his ministry are not the things that will save anyone. But that those that trust the source of the miracles and therefore his authority, whether they are applied or not, will be the following. Get some feedback here, aren't we? Okay. So for those that follow Jesus, not trusting in, in the surface of his miracles, as it were, in, in just the, the, the doing of the miracles and therefore following him because he's given us something. Give me more, give me something else, give me another sign, give me another wonder. But for those that are following, trust in him, despite what he does in miracles, in wonders, in signs. This is what happens to us. We will be rich in the gospel. We will be healed in heart. We'll be free from captivity. We'll be able to see God and able to be free from oppression. What a list of amazing gifts from God. The fact that they don't receive Jesus has nothing to do with Jesus. Nothing to do with him, but everything to do with them. He is truly from God, but they won't receive him. Their rejection says more about them than Jesus. It shows that God's miraculous power operates in unexpected and sovereign ways. People that we often consider undeserving and off the wall are many times recipients of God's miraculous power. God deals in the unexpected as we perceive the unexpected. That is trust and faith in the authority of God. What is overlooked is that through all the anger of the mob, they didn't get to see a miracle, they miss one that happens right in front of them. 
You know, he ends up giving them a miracle anyway. He tells them, God doesn't have to do it. It's not, it's not, you do not control God and he will do it as he, in his plan to do so. And yet what they miss is a miracle happen right in front of them. The mob led Jesus to the brow of the hill where they were about to throw him off the cliff. And not only that, but had they been able to do it, they would have then pelted him with stones. That was part of the tradition of doing that, of, of, of taking people to the top of a hill, a small mountain, a small cliff, throw them off and then pelt them with stones until they were dead. That was what they would do to people. And this was common process. But right on the edge, the miracle occurs. Verse 30, but he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. And again, if you can just picture that moment where he is cornered on a cliff. And in that moment, he doesn't walk around them he doesn't do some dodge or whatever you want to call it. He walks right through the middle of them. And I wonder, wow, how would that have looked? What? And then realising and not seeing him walk through the crowd. Not seeing him disappear only to after he'd left. That's a miracle, isn't it? How do you disappear in front of a mob of angry people who are determined to kill you? That's a miracle. He didn't fight his way through, walked right through and on his way as if nothing was about to happen. It's fantastic. And I think when we look at this account, the one thing that I learned from this is that God isn't a plaything. He isn't to be tested for our amusement or entertainment. He's to be revered and respected. But even when we don't honour God, he's still loving in his grace. He is gracious that he doesn't send us to hell now. He is gracious that he doesn't strike us down. He's gracious. Because he, he, he knows that he, he wants people to recognise that when that day comes, when the final day comes, he wants to give them every chance possible to come to him. They will need God as we need God for more than signs and wonders. And we will need him for, their, for our and their very salvation. John 18 verse um, 36 says this. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. For believers, we too must live as gaining more than what is offered temporarily by this world. That is our citizenship that as our citizenship is now in heaven, we continue to mature and behave more like that citizen than a citizen of this world. That is the challenge for Christians on, in this place until we go and meet him. How do we be a citizen of heaven in this world for now? That's what you're doing every day. As a Christian, you are... You are learning and trying to be a citizen of heaven in this place, in this world. And as I said at the start, that's why it's simply not a case of going, I believe in Jesus, all my problems disappear. We are still surrounded by the influence, by the brokenness of sin. So I don't pretend to, to, to make this message nice and acceptable because it isn't. It should be objectionable. Because we in our flesh are sinful and this message should be object objectionable to us. 
But it doesn't have to stay that way. We can accept the message and we can come to a knowledge and salvation in Jesus Christ. That is possible. If we behave like citizens of heaven, then our hearts will want all the more those that do not believe to come to a truth and salvation in Jesus. And I'm going to read this as our last verse here and then we're going to, I'm going to pray and then we're going to uh, have two songs to worship. It says here in Philippians 3, verse 15 to 21. All of us then who are mature should take such a view of things that, and if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Only let's live up to what we have already attained. Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters, and just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. For as I've often told you before and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a saviour from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. I love that verse, those verses, because it perfectly balances God's judgment, but with this hope that people who are destined currently for that judgment of hell will turn and come to Jesus with tears in my eyes. That's an amazing piece of scripture. That's the heart we should have, isn't it? That's the heart we should be looking for when, when we, wanna, we want people who we know, friends and families, to come and know Jesus. So easy to get annoyed. So easy to get tired, impatient for people who you know might just be on the edge of believing in Jesus. And so with tears, with, with a heartfelt passion, we'll keep going until Jesus returns. Or until we go and meet him. I'm going to pray and then we'll have our uh, worship time. Lord, we want to thank you that you are, you are, you are such a gracious, loving God that you have done everything that needed to be done so that we may choose to accept Jesus as our Lord and Saviour. That there is nothing we can do in ourselves to please you. There is nothing good about us. But thank you for Jesus who has made it possible for sinners to come and be restored in relationship to Jesus Christ. Lord, when I, th when I think of that, that relationship of the Trinity, when I think of entering the presence of God through the Holy Spirit, how, how much do we not deserve that? How much do we not deserve to enter the presence of a holy, perfect God? And yet, we are invited today to come and repent, to admit our sinful behaviour, to admit that we are against you. And even in that, what feels like the broken depth that we cannot be rescued from, that is the moment that we are rescued. That we are 
from death to life. We are brought back to life, to a new life in Jesus. Lord, we do not deserve to be in your presence. We do not deserve to even speak to you right now. And yet it is possible because you made it possible. That's amazing. Thank you, Lord, that we can, we can do this right now. You hear our prayers. You hear our inaudible prayers, our, our prayers that we don't speak through our mouth, but in our head, in our heart. You hear those too. Oh, Lord. I want to say, you, you've just given us too much. <laughs> Where do you start? Where do you begin to even give thanks for that? So, Lord, we, we, we can't because there's no way that we can ever give you something that compared. So, Lord, we do this in worship instead. We, we give you our heart, our minds, our soul. And we, we praise you through uh, music that you've given us, that you've invented, that you've, you've done through people, gifted people. To worship and praise your name. And we do that today, Lord. And so thank you, Lord, that we have Jesus Christ who fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah who has come as a baby, but to give his life on the cross and to rise again so that we may have a new life in him. We thank you, Lord, for all these things. Amen. Amen.